All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles. Uh, you can put away your hymnals and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Ascends the reading of the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the very many blessings that you have given us. We thank you especially now for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us your will for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for everything in your word, Lord, for all of its many encouragements and promises. And Lord, we thank you also even for the warnings. Lord, we have a solemn text to expound this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit here, that we would be able to receive your words properly that we would give to them the proper gravity that they deserve. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may it be unto the edification, the building of your people, and also unto the conversion of sinners. Lord, bless now this time. Be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up this morning where we left off in John. Uh, just to recap, Jesus here is still at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we join him in the middle of a dialogue with the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus had proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. And this then led to a discussion with the Pharisees about the authority of Jesus to bear witness about himself. And I realized as I ended the sermon last week that I did so without commenting on the last part of verse 20. And so that's where we pick up today. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. We covered that. But no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So chapter by chapter, we've seen tensions rising between Jesus and the Jews as Jesus continues to say things that anger the Pharisees and other religious leaders. Now in chapter 7, we saw the murmurings of the crowd, people wondering if perhaps the reason why Jesus had not yet been arrested was Perhaps the authorities believed in him, that they knew he was the Messiah. Uh, Jesus was teaching openly in the temple. Now, hearing these things from the crowd prompted the Pharisees and, uh, to issue the arrest warrant for Jesus back in chapter 7, verse 32. We read there, however, that the officers returned empty-handed, having been astonished at what they heard from Jesus. Their answer when they were asked why they didn't bring him was that no one ever spoke like this man. And so Jesus continued teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles and was not arrested, still not arrested. And our verse here tells us that it was because 
his hour had not come. That is to say, the time that God had sovereignly planned for his arrest, trial, and crucifixion was not yet here. Notice that John points to the sovereignty of God as the reason why Jesus had not been arrested at this point. And I think in this we get an interesting and helpful glimpse at how God exercises his sovereignty. All right, we could ask this question. Why did the officers not arrest Jesus in chapter 7? Was it A, because of the sovereign timing of God, his hour had not yet come? Or was it B, because the officers were amazed at his speech? No one has ever spoken like this man. Well, that's a trick question. If we see that in chapter 8, his hour had not yet come, then this would have been equally true in chapter 7, right, prior to this. So if God had his sovereign timeline he was following, then we can see that it was certain Jesus would not be arrested before the appointed time. And so in this, I believe, God gives us another glimpse behind the curtain. He reveals his purposes and intentions, and we get a glimpse of how things work behind the scenes, so to speak. So we see here uh, in John 8, verse 20, that it is God's sovereign decree, his plan and purposes that can be seen as the primary cause for why Christ wasn't arrested at that time. And back in chapter 7, we can see the way he brought that to will to pass was through the astonishment of the guards. So we would say to our question earlier, both are true. Right, the guards were stunned by how Jesus spoke, and so they did not arrest him. And we also know that in the sovereign purposes of God, Christ's hour had not yet come. And so seeing both of these levels at play in one example is helpful for understanding how God works in our lives. We see and know from the scriptures that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he is the one who has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And as the catechism says, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And what we see is that he usually brings his purposes about through ordinary means. Now we're not told in chapter 8, verse 20, precisely how God prevented the arrest of Christ, only that the ultimate reason he wasn't arrested was because his hour had not yet come. And so what we get through these examples is how God often works. Now we know God, of course, is free to work beyond ordinary means if he chooses. Uh, we looked at some examples of where Jesus uh, somewhat miraculously escapes the hands of the Jews Right, the one crowd that pulls him, pushes him up to the cliff and is ready to push him over the cliff. And then Jesus just passes through their midst <laughs> and walks away. That looks like some kind of supernatural intervention there. Um, but we should not think that God is any less involved if he uses what we would consider ordinary means rather than the extraordinary means. Right, so for the example, the astonishment of the Pharisees was also God's working in them because Christ's hour had not yet come. And so for us in our lives, the fact that we don't see miracles happening very often, right? The, the 
putting on hold the laws of physics, um, these kinds of interventions, the fact we don't see that much does not mean that God is not involved in our lives. We see through the scriptures, he is working out his purposes in and through all things. And most of the time, he uses the things that we would consider to be ordinary and unexciting to accomplish his will. For example, in the lives of your children, it will not likely be any big, grand events, any monumental, life-changing situations that will shape your children into godly adults. For most of them, it will just be long-term faithfulness, right? steady obedience in a Christ-word direction, right? daily family worship over a lifetime, regular commitment to the church, to the means of grace, preaching, singing, communion, fellowship, many seemingly mundane and ordinary things. But if at the end you see a godly adult raised in your home, you will look back at that situation and you will say, God did that. The fact that it wasn't flashy, the fact that God didn't have to you know, rend the heavens and come down and speak to each one audibly, visibly, does not mean that God wasn't involved. In fact, we know the opposite is true. For unless God moves, our preaching will be in vain. Right? It will fall upon deaf ears, which is why we pray every time before we preach that the Spirit would move. So we see in this text, no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. God was working out his sovereign purposes. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now this here is very similar to what Jesus said in chapter 7, 33 and 34. Only this time, Jesus adds a solemn warning. So firstly, he says, I am going away. What he meant by this is that he was going to die. Jesus would be crucified and would rise again, and after that would ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus then says they will seek him. Now again, given what we know of the Jewish leaders at this time, their rejection of Christ, it seems unlikely that Jesus means that these people to whom he was speaking would seek him personally in order to receive him or to become his followers. And so many commentators take this to mean that the Jews would continue seeking their Messiah. Right? Having rejected Christ as a messianic candidate, they would continue looking, continue waiting for the Messiah to arrive with the end result being tragic. They will die in their sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus, of course, will go back to the Father. And where he goes, they cannot come. That is, they will not get to the Father. They will die in their sins. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now once again, the Jews miss what was said by Jesus. And once again, there is an interesting prophetic irony in their statement. 
Now, the last time Jesus said something like this, uh, back in chapter 734, the Jews wondered if he meant that he would go beyond the borders of Israel to preach to the dispersion, right? The Jews that were scattered among the lands uh, beyond the borders of the Holy Land, um, or perhaps to even teach the Gentiles. Now, what was interesting about that is that we know from hindsight that in fact it was a part of Christ's mission for the Gentiles to be brought in. I think most of us in this room are living proof of that 2,000 years later nearly. And so here we have a similar prophetic irony as they wonder if Jesus means to kill himself, right? You will go away and where you go, we can't come. Are you talking about your death? Are you going to kill yourself? What's interesting about this is that it was, in fact, as we know, an important part of Christ's mission that he would come and die. But as D.A. Carson puts it, his opponents are wrong to think he will achieve his departure by killing himself. Unwittingly, they are nevertheless profoundly right. For he goes away by voluntarily laying down his life and not in suicide, but in submission to his father's will in a violent death meted out by his enemies. So notice through these misunderstandings, the Jews end up foreshadowing certain elements of Christ's mission, right? that the Gentiles would be brought in, that he would go and die. Let's continue on. Verse 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. You are from below. You are from this earth. You are descended from a man made from the dust of the earth. I am from above. Again, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He has eternally been at the Father's right hand. Jesus says, you are of this world. That is, they are of this ordered system. They are part of this system of rebellion against God, referred to in Scripture as the world. In contrast, Christ is not of this world. Now, I remember a few years back, uh, possibly the first time I read through John uh, by myself uh, and with understanding, I remember being struck by how Jesus spoke, and not always in a positive way. Some of what Jesus said struck me as being quite harsh, and some of it even sounded uh, downright arrogant. And truly, if we heard someone speaking like this today, right, I am from above, you are from below, I am not of this world, you are of this world, right, we would think this is somebody that is quite full of themselves, somebody perhaps with delusions of grandeur. We would begin to wonder, as the Jews will ask in this text, who do you think you are? I think this is a related problem that we face when we come to texts that speak about God acting for his own glory. Right, texts where God says that I am going to act for the sake of my name, for the sake of my praise, uh, for my own glory. Right, if a human spoke this way, we would rightly conclude that that person is quite self-absorbed. Right, they seem to think they are all that. And it would strike us as being extremely inappropriate. And indeed, for a mere creature, it would be. Right? If a mere creature, if you or I, began speaking in such self-exalting terms, it would be wrong. Why? 
because we are not deserving of such accolades. When a creature from the dirt begins acting like they are the center of the universe, we seem to have the natural desire to put them in their place, to see them brought down a peg or three. Self-exaltation for the creature is wrong because by exalting themselves, they are claiming glory that they do not deserve. Right? They have an inaccurate, inflated view of themselves. Creatures, therefore, are wrong to be self-exalting. But what about the creator? What about God? The creature is wrong when they view themselves as the center of the universe, but what about God? Do you have the desire, when you hear language like that of Christ, to put God in his place? What place would that be? For the self-exalting creature, that would mean to take him down a few pegs, give him a dose of reality, show him you are not the center of all things. But if we were to attempt, as if we could, if we were to attempt to put God in his place, his rightful place, where would we conclude he belongs? Is God wrong to hold his own glory in highest esteem? Right? If God were simply to give an accurate ranking to the value of all things in existence from the best, most glorious, most worthy and deserving all the way down to the most vile and despicable things in existence, what will an accurate, objectively true assessment of all things declare to be the most glorious, the most worthy, the most deserving of exaltation, honor and praise? Right? What is at the top? What deserves to be there? Well, the answer can only be God himself. With an infinite gap between God and any created thing. In comparison to the worth and glory of God, all of his creation is as dust on the scales. And so for God to regard himself as being supremely valuable is simply for him to give an accurate assessment of the way things really are. And in fact, for God to regard anything other than himself in this way would be sin. For it is the essence of idolatry to give the honor and glory that is due to God alone to any substitute. And so God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is a righteous act. So when we come to the statements from Christ that appear to be self-exalting, let us remember who is speaking. This is no mere creature. This is God the Son incarnate, having entered into his own creation. Let us not blaspheme God the Son by presuming to sit as judge over his words. If God speaks, our duty as his creatures is to hum humbly 
and reverently receive, believe, and obey. And so my reaction to the words of Christ, thinking he sounded arrogant, was a blasphemous failure to recognize who Christ really is. It was a failure to honor Christ as holy. So let us approach all of the word of God with the reverence God is due. Christ speaks the truth. We are from below. He is from above. We are of this world. He is not of this world. This is not arrogance. This is accuracy. This is truth. Christ follows it up with a solemn, solemn warning to those who would disbelieve. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, what does that mean, to die in your sins? Well, in the immediate context, we see that Jesus had said, he is going away, and where he is going, they cannot come. Jesus, of course, is going back to the Father. And so to die in your sins is contrasted with going to where Jesus went. Where he is going, you cannot come. Those who die in their sins will therefore not be welcomed into the presence of the Father, either at their deaths, nor following the judgment on the last day. How could they, when they have rejected the Son? It's been quite clear throughout John's Gospel that to reject the Son is to reject the Father who sent him. Those who die in their sins will not go to be with the Father. Scripture actually has a lot to say about the ultimate destination of those who die in their sins. So I think it's worth lingering here for a moment. We'll go through a few of these texts. And as we do, I'm hoping and praying that three things will happen. Number one, I'm hoping that we will grow in our understanding of the holiness of God as we consider what God has told us our sin deserves. Number two, I'm hoping that we, as Christ's people, would grow in our appreciation for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we consider what he has saved us from. And number three, I'm hoping that there will be some who will hear, who will hear of the horrors of hell and will flee from the wrath to come and will find their refuge and salvation in Christ. So let's consider what the scripture says about the final judgment. The final judgment for those who die in their sins is to be thrown into a lake which burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death, Revelation 21.8. It is described as a place of suffering where the wicked will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. 
It is a place of eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46. It is eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. Revelation 14, verse 11. It is described as the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. It is described as the outer darkness and as the fiery furnace in which there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 50 and 8, verse 12. We see it is punishment. It is judgment. It is eternal damnation. It is to bear for eternity the wrath of Almighty God. Woe to those who die in their sins. The greatest miseries of this life will be as heaven compared to the torments of hell. So heed the warnings of Christ. Flee the wrath to come. How much of your life is spent pursuing earthly comforts? Sinner, you live and strive and sweat and clamor for money, for power, or for comforts. You spend so much time and energy seeking to make your life better here and now. But Christ asks, what will it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Would you really trade eternity for one moment in time? Is your sin so precious that you would cling to it, deny Christ, and choose damnation over submission to Christ? Does your sin not leave you unsatisfied? Have you not found it to be a false prophet, promising life, promising pleasure, but in the end proving to be bitter? Have you not walked that road a thousand times? Do you not yet know where it ends? It ends in misery. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. Friends, do not die in your sins. There is hope, there is life, there is grace, forgiveness, and salvation. But truly, as Christ said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what is the solution? How may a sinner escape the wrath of God? Jesus says you must believe. We fallen sinners that we are can do nothing to earn our way into heaven. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot be good enough to earn a right standing before God. But God, in his great love and mercy, sent his Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Consider what we've seen of Christ. The infinitely valuable, 
infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy and deserving Son of God humbled himself. He left the glories of heaven behind, no doubt to the astonishment of the angels, and was born as a man, became a servant, and submitted himself to a shameful death upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God that his people deserved. That which would have been poured out upon us, his people, for eternity in hell, was born by him. He drank the bitter cup down to the dregs. And no other sacrifice could have paid that penalty. Sin against an infinitely glorious God deserves an infinite punishment. It requires an infinite payment. And so nothing else but the infinitely valuable Son of God would suffice to make atonement, to pay our ransom. He, the theme of heaven's praises, clothed in humanity and offered to God to pay the debt that we owed. Sinners, look to Christ. Here is salvation. Here there is hope. Here there is eternal life. Do not die in your sins. Believe. Believe and you will be saved. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now Jesus says, you must believe that I am. The English translations add the word he Uh, perhaps either to smooth out the language or to show the link that we'll look at in a minute to Isaiah. But what Jesus literally says here in the Greek is simply that you must believe that I am. Ego I me. Now we've seen to this point Jesus has been using this phrase, this ego I me, usually to reveal something about himself. He has said, I am, ego I me, the bread of life, or I am, ego I me, the light of the world. But here it seems like he doesn't quite finish his sentence. He says, unless you believe that I am. And we're thinking, unless we believe that you are what? D.A. Carson comments, the absolute usage in this passage certainly has more theological weight to it Uh, Then those other texts, those other I am statements we've looked at. He says, in this sort of context, it does not appear to be a normal Greek expression at all. Now, we spent some time looking at the use of ego I me, and have discussed that it is likely a reference back to the divine name. Um, And so now here we'll we'll build that case. We'll, We'll demonstrate that. When you examine the usage of this phrase, uh, especially in Isaiah, the connection to the name Yahweh, the divine name given in Exodus 3, becomes very strong. So as we've mentioned, while ego I me is in Exodus 3, in the giving of the divine name, that's actually not the entire phrase there. Uh, The entire phrase would be ego I me ho on. 
And so Carson writes that if John had intended to make a direct reference to Exodus 3, one might have expected ho on, that last part about uh, the verb to be, uh, instead of ego I me. Uh, that is why the majority of interpreters, Carson writes, rightly see that the proper background to ego I me in John is the use of ego I me in Isaiah 40 to 55. Uh, James White agrees, um, but argues that you still can and should connect this to Exodus 3. He says, there is a line of argument, a very solid one, that leads us from John 8 back through Isaiah to Exodus 3. So let's examine just a few of those texts from Isaiah to build this case. Isaiah 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that last phrase in verse 4 is translated, ego, I me. Another example, Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Now, there it's in the middle of the verse, that you may know and believe me and understand that ego I me. One more. Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. So to trace this argument and put it as simply as possible, bear with me, this is a little bit complex. Um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates the Hebrew phrase, anihu. Uh, the Greek translation translates that as ego I me. James White asserts that the use of anihu in Hebrew by Isaiah is used as a euphemism for the very name of God himself. So, just to put that simply, the Hebrew phrase that Isaiah uses, anihu, that is a reference, that is a direct reference, a euphemism back to the divine name, the I am. And we see in Greek that is translated as ego I me in the Septuagint, uh, which John and his readers would have been very familiar with. So, consider these texts and let us look at what Jesus quotes of himself. Who gives victory to the kings as he wishes? Who has called generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, ego I me. That you may know and understand, ego I me. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I have carried you from the womb, and even to your old age, ego I me. 
I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. And so back to John, Jesus says, unless you believe, ego I me, you will die in your sins. So James White concludes, he says, Jesus here gives us the content and the object of saving faith. Real faith is that which focuses on the real Jesus. Jesus laid down the line. Unless one believes him for who he says he is, the ego I me, one will die in one's sins. There is no salvation in a false Christ. If we are to be united with Christ to have eternal life, then we must be united to the true Christ and not a false representation. Close quote. And who is the true Christ? Well, that's the question the Jews asked next. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. So what is that? What has Jesus revealed about himself just through John to this point? Let's recap some of these texts. Jesus has said he is the son of man who will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3, 14 and 15. He is the Son of God, sent not to condemn, but to save the world. John 3, 16 and 17. He is the source of living water that becomes in those who drink a fountain welling up to eternal life. John 4, 14. He is the one to whom the Father will entrust all judgment so that all may honor him even as they honor the Father. John 5, 22 and 23. He is the one to whom the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament scriptures, bear witness. John 5, 39. He is the one who is received by all true followers of Moses, for Moses wrote of him. John 5, 46. He is the bread of life, come down from heaven to give life to the world. John 6:33 He is the one who will keep preserve and raise up on the last day all those the Father had given him and who come to him in faith. John 6:39 He is the one who is hated by the world for he testifies that its works are evil. John 7:7 7, 7. He is the one who invites all who thirst to come and to drink. And those who do will have rivers of living water flowing from their hearts. John 7, 38. And he is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. To believe as we must that Jesus is the ego I me, the I am. This is to receive him for who he truly is. He is God. God, the Son, the eternal second person of the Godhead. He is our Lord and Savior, and salvation is found in no one else. 
Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that confession that Christ is Lord cannot be an empty confession. To believe Christ, to believe as he says that I am, is to receive him as your Lord and, to sa and your Savior. It is to receive him for who he truly is in all of his authority. To put him in his place, to give him the seat in your heart that he deserves, is to place him on the throne of your heart. What does it mean for Christ to be on the throne of your heart? It means that he is Lord of every part of your life. There is no part of your life in which the crown rights of Christ do not apply. There is no part of your life in which Christ does not have something to say. And so we must serve him all the way down and all the way across. What does that look like practically? It looks like studying his word, learning his will so that you can apply his will. Put it into practice in your life. It is very difficult to live in a way that pleases your king if you are unfamiliar with his will for your life. For how can you obey that which you do not know? So brothers and sisters, soak in the word daily. Read this whole thing. When you finish, do it again. And when you finish again, do it again. Get a reading plan. Do it together as a family. Soak in the word. Secondly, this looks like daily self-examination. In your prayers and meditations, be honest with yourself and find those areas where you have been falling short. Confess that sin to God. Pray that he would help you overcome it and be conscious of it throughout the next day. Thirdly, serving Christ as your Lord looks like surrendering every single part of yourself. What is that habitual sin that you've not been dealing with? What is that dark room of your heart that you have boarded off? What is that dark corner you're not willing to shine the light into? What sin is that in your life that you have not been putting to death? What duty does God require of you that you have not been obeying? Do you indulge the lust of your flesh with porn and masturbation? Do you harbor, do you hang on to anger and bitterness toward people for past offenses? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Wives, are you joyfully submitting to your own husbands, submitting in everything as the church submits to Christ? Fathers, are you bringing up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord? Are you leading in daily family worship? My younger brothers and sisters, kids, teenagers, are you striving to grow into true Christian maturity? Or do you make excuses for yourselves 
thinking, you know, this is just the way kids are. My young brothers and sisters, do not let the world set the course for your life. For all of us, Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the world. That is, do not be like the world. Do not copy the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. If you would claim the name of Christ, if you would call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, then understand that he is the one who must set the course for your life. He is your Lord, your captain. Bring your life into conformity with his will. Get baptized. Join the church. Come under spiritual authority as Christ commands. For either Christ is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. No one can serve two masters. If Christ is your Lord, then surrender your entire self. Romans 12.1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There is no fence sitting. You cannot straddle the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. But unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So friends, throw yourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And to my brothers and sisters, bring your life in its entirety into conformity with the will of your Lord, King, Savior, God, and Master. Let us remember at all times who he is, the I Am. Amen.